0: If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches, but there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Did the Spanish flu actually begin in Spain? What were its symptoms? Is it true that it killed more people than the First World War? And how similar was it to the Covid pandemic? In our latest Everything You Want to Know episode, the writer, researcher and historian Agnes Arnold Forster answers listener questions all about the Spanish flu pandemic in conversation with Lauren Good.
2: We're talking about the Spanish flu today, a pandemic that swept across the world in the early 20th century and infected an estimated one third of its population. Agnes, let's begin with the question so many of our listeners have asked. Why is it called the Spanish flu?
3: Well, poor Spain got a bit of a bad rep in all this. And it was unjustified because it wasn't that the flu actually started in Spain, but rather that Spain was neutral in World War One. And unlike the rest of Europe and North America, their news media extensively covered the pandemic. Other countries refused to admit having cases. They weren't covering the um, pandemic in their news media because they were still working under wartime censorship laws. So it looked like Spain was not only the originator, but also bearing the brunt of the pandemic, which just wasn't the case.
2: So we've clarified that this pandemic didn't actually begin in Spain. Do we have any idea of how it did start? So the first recorded cases came out of Kansas in the United States in
3: military camps. So World War I soldiers preparing to go off to war. And it was these very overcrowded camps unsanitary conditions and like many diseases it probably transferred over from some sort of animal the conditions for animals um, transferring their diseases over humans thrive in overcrowded and unsanitary places.
2: Annette Luther on Facebook asks which parts of the world did it hit and when? So it was a
3: truly global pandemic so as I said it started in the US and then sort of followed mostly the movement of troops across the places where World War I was fought. And obviously, World War I was also a global conflict. But in places like New York City, it was something like 33,000 victims. But it also wiped out almost entire villages in much more remote places like Alaska. It hit the Caribbean, India, New Zealand, China, Norway, even the remote Pacific Islands. So it really was a global pandemic, as the name suggests. And Uh, Researchers now think that up to a third of the US population was infected with Spanish flu.
2: Following on from this, we have a question from Instagram that asks, what areas of the globe escaped the Spanish flu? Were there any that managed to?
3: Pretty much. I mean, it was much less virulent or much less prevalent in South America for various reasons partly because they weren't involved in the war in the same way and of course the more remote you were the less likely or the slower it took for the disease to come as with so many pandemics it really hit big cities overcrowded urban places much more so than in more sparsely populated areas but pretty much the whole world experienced this pandemic nowhere managed to escape entirely
2: how did the spanish flu spread like this
3: it was mainly through soldiers the movement of troops so it was really tied up with the world war and um, it travelled on naval ships troops both moving to the front but then also coming back home again so it hit in 1918 as the war was ending and so as troops were returning back to their families tragically they would bring often bring the disease back home with them and so really it's as with so many illnesses it's the movement of people and in this case You have a kind of unprecedented movement of people around the globe in a way that hadn't really been seen before because of the scale of the conflict.
2: Amelia Edwards on Instagram asks, what were the symptoms of this virus? So kind of classic
3: flu symptoms that we might all be pretty familiar with. High fever, a cough, body aches, chills, intense fatigue, but all, you know, pretty bad. It was not a pleasant disease to have. And of course, not everyone died of the disease, but those that did would succumb to pneumonia, would get cyanosis, which is where your skin turns blue because of a lack of oxygen. And it was an incredibly fast-moving disease, or at least it could be. And there were reports of some people dying the day that they first showed symptoms. So they'd have you know 12 hours between falling ill and dying. So it could move incredibly quickly and made it a very traumatic, I mean, all diseases are traumatic to a certain extent, but a particularly traumatic one.
2: And as the pandemic continued, did treatment change at all due to medical professionals learning more about this virus?
3: So generally speaking, the treatments were pretty minimal. So this was a viral disease. So even if antibiotics had existed at this point, which they did not, they wouldn't have worked. And they didn't have the kind of antivirals that we use today. And really, most of the treatment was focused on supporting symptoms and alleviating suffering. So trying to reduce fevers, alleviate pain, using treatments like aspirin, or some people were hooked up to oxygen to help with pneumonia or breathing. So really, they were kind of more supportive treatments rather than curative ones. And really, what they were doing was relying on the body's own immune system to defend them against the disease. And sometimes that worked and sometimes it didn't. They did try some new treatments and there were lots of doctors and scientists who were very interested in this as a kind of research problem, as a clinical problem. And so there were advances in things like blood and sputum tests, like tests to identify what was infecting someone. And some scientists suggested doing things like Using, which, which people have also suggested during the COVID pandemic, using the serum of convalescent patients, the so patients who'd recovered, injecting that into very sick patients with the idea that the person who'd recovered would have antiviral antibodies that could then be used to treat the sick people. But I don't think they were ever actually used. They were just more um, speculative ideas that were p- published in medical journals.
2: So we've just discussed those cures that people use for the Spanish flu, but let's move on slightly to prevention. Were there any public health initiatives or precautions made in Britain in response to the Spanish flu? So
3: there were some responses in Britain. I mean, they did classic things like trying to limit public gatherings, limit places where people congregated in large numbers to try and restrict the spread. They also encouraged mask wearing, um, which we'll all be familiar with now. In the US, they were much more... It was patchier, but they did do a lot of restrictions. So closing public schools, shops... Closed movie theatres, dance halls, places where people went and sort of socialised in the evenings. Some places even closed church services. There was a lot of surveillance, so public health authorities would go around and check to see who was unwell and to try and encourage them to stay indoors or at least to be able to track the movement of the disease. You know, knowledge is power, that kind of thing. Spitting in the street was prohibited restrictions on sneezing and coughing in public, although one would hope that that would (laughs) predate the pandemic (laughs) and then do the did. And so there were kind of all the things that we might be familiar with, quarantining restrictions in large gathering of people and the use of face masks. But they weren't used very systematically. So it wasn't that there were any, there weren't any of these restrictions introduced on a national scale, like by the kind of central government. They were done in a much more local
2: fashion. This episode is brought to you by Indeed.
1: Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash History Extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra.
2: Life is a
0: highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.
2: Were any of these precautions more successful than others? Yeah, so it's very interesting because of the way
3: that these restrictions were introduced or these public health measures were introduced. And because they weren't national and they were introduced on a much more local scale, we can kind of compare where they were effective and where they weren't. So for example, in St. Louis, in Missouri, restrictions on public gatherings were introduced really quickly, almost as soon as the first infections were identified. And that was pretty successful. That really did bring down the number of people who died. Whereas in places like Philadelphia, um, introduced more slowly, and also in New York, where there were a lot of commercial concerns about what would be the financial impact of closing lots of places like movie theaters in a big bustling city like New York. And so in those places, restrictions tended to be more minimal or introduced more slowly. And so the disease spread more quickly and so we can see quite kind of you know almost like an experiment although it wasn't done like that but where these restrictions worked and where they didn't
2: work so well. Ron Porteous from Instagram asks whether there was any organised resistance to these public health measures.
3: So there was some resistance. Generally speaking, compliance was very high, and particularly when it comes to mask wearing in Britain. Um, So it didn't carry the same politicized baggage that it kind of acquired during the COVID pandemic. And so generally speaking, people wore masks. People avoided public gatherings. They kind of did as they were asked. There were some sort of smaller scale or more local movements of resistance. So for example, there was an anti-mask league in San Francisco in the United States. And some social restrictions were met with resistance. So for example, in New Orleans, where I said before that some places um, churches were closed or church services were put on hold, and the Catholic priests of New Orleans were really opposed to this because they argued that the city hadn't closed shops. And so they're like, well, why can people continue to go shopping but can't come and worship God, especially at a time when, you know, lots of people dying, you need that kind of emotional, spiritual support. So there were some movements of resistance and some of them came from surprising places. But generally speaking, people did comply with the public health measures that were introduced.
2: For these few people that did break the rules or challenge them, were there any consequences?
3: No, so these weren't, generally speaking, legal impositions. So it wasn't like there were loads of people rounded up and arrested. And, and also a lot of the resistance was a resistance against things that um, were, in essence, optional. So mask wearing wasn't legally mandated. So not wearing a mask wasn't going to get you chucked in jail. And in the same way, the kind of religious opposition was more kind of opposition levied in the press, say, and in communications rather than, you know, big protests So it didn't evoke the same kind of public anger or public resistance that we might be more familiar with today.
2: And of course, these precautions were made to prevent the spread of infection and ultimately death. What was the death rate for the Spanish flu?
3: They think that something like 50 million people worldwide died from Spanish flu. It's very difficult to ascertain precise figures at a time when death reporting wasn't as robust or rigorous and especially all over the world where different countries have very different levels of you know, effective bureaucracy or state intervention in people's lives. But roughly 50 million is the figure that we're working with. Um, something like 2.5% of um, people infected
2: died. Marina on Instagram asks, how did undertakers cope with this huge increase in deaths?
3: Well, they were very overburdened. They were very overworked. The dead were left in their homes, sometimes for days. Undertakers hiked their prices. I think I read somewhere that it was up to 600%. And you have reports of bereaved families digging graves for their loved ones themselves, rather than waiting for undertakers to kind of catch up with the, with the backlog, as it were. So yeah, they, they, they struggled.
2: And there's been a lot of comparison regarding death rates between the Spanish flu and the First World War. And quite a few people asked, is it true that it did kill more people than the First World War? Yes,
3: it is true. Um, Again, it's hard to precisely ascertain the death rates or the figures for Spanish flu. I mean, this remains true today. It can be very difficult to be very precise about the number of people who died from an illness, especially an illness like Spanish flu, which had a very clear symptom pattern, but also a symptom pattern that could be shared potentially with other illnesses. So unless you have um, someone testing every single person who dies, which you just do not have, it's always difficult to be very, very accurate about um, historical death rates or historical figures about dying from particular diseases. But generally speaking, historians agree that more people died from the Spanish flu than from World War One.
2: You've just discussed there the difficulty of ascertaining how many people actually died because of Spanish flu. Are there any other factors that make this so difficult?
3: Well, you're dealing with the First World War, the aftermath of the First World War, the tail end. So you have both a large number of people who are returning to home from fighting a war. And we know that there are lots of people who will have died on the battlefield, but they wouldn't have been recorded, or who... um, you know, managed to survive, but were recorded as dead. So it's an incredibly turbulent time, an incredibly complicated time, with lots of different causes of death coinciding. And so that certainly made it very difficult. And also, I think that thing about this being a truly global pandemic, and so you have lots of people dying in very remote places, lots of people died in places where they didn't have very well-resourced public health systems, and so wouldn't have been recorded as um, having died from the Spanish flu at all
2: and surely the level of risk must have differed depending on where you lived. Blake Johnson on Facebook asks, what were experiences like on either side of the urban-rural divide? So, of course, the
3: disease was much more prevalent in densely populated urban places and spread much more quickly in big cities. So you were much more likely to get the disease. Um, In terms of how likely you were to survive, it's a little bit more complicated or a little bit more unpredictable. Some researchers think that in isolated communities, death rates were much higher because even though the disease wasn't as prevalent in these places, people living in cities tended to have a higher degree of pre-existing immunity. So they would have had other diseases and survived them and their immune systems would have been more robust. Whereas if you're in a more isolated place, you might not have been sick before or might not have been so sick before, and so therefore more vulnerable to a new illness. Similarly, in cities... Generally speaking, people had access to better care. So even though more people might have been infected by um, the disease in cities, at least then they could usually go to more well-resourced hospitals, get the kind of supportive treatments like oxygen or aspirin or just being better cared for. And so that's the kind of, it's a little bit more complicated when it comes to the actual experience of people who would have caught Spanish flu and whether they lived or died.
2: We're talking here about a period prior to welfare state and insurance-based systems. What was the divide like between classes? You talk about, you know, getting cures like oxygen. Surely these were very expensive.
3: Yeah, people often talk about disease being a great leveller. But as any historian of medicine knows, that your likelihood of surviving diseases, your likelihood of surviving pandemics or epidemics is much greater if you're wealthy. Partly because you're able to often more able to leave densely populated places, you're likely to live in more sanitary conditions in the first place, and you can afford better treatments. And so, places like the UK did have care provided for poorer people. Lots of hospitals, for example, would provide free treatment to the very poor. And at this moment, it is just after the introduction of some welfare provisions by the state, at least in in Britain. And so it wasn't a case that people just had absolutely no access to good treatment, at least in the UK. But definitely the richer you are the more able you are to afford the kind of treatments that we've discussed and so of course the death rate is going to be higher the poorer you are and the same is true of other more marginalized communities like a lot of the disease would spread particularly quickly through densely populated areas and cities which are mostly or or more likely to be um, inhabited by migrants people of color people who are in positions of sort of general social deprivation and so all of those factors shaped the demographics of the pandemic.
2: And we've touched quite a bit already on the First World War. The Spanish flu began in 1918, the final year of the conflict. What sort of impacts did it have on the First World War?
3: Well, it's difficult to ascertain, really, because, you know, in some ways, we're dealing with counterfactuals here, because you could argue that perhaps if The Spanish flu hadn't broken out, then the war could have continued on because the Spanish flu was very debilitating for troop movements. Because the Spanish flu, kind of strangely, was worst felt by young men in their late teens and twenties. They were the most likely to die from the disease. And usually diseases kill off the very young and the very old, but the Spanish flu was sort of strange in targeting the young. And so That obviously would have an impact on countries' war readiness or ability to continue fighting. But we can only really speculate on what um, might have happened if it didn't break out in 1918. But also, of course, World War One was a key factor in both the initiation and the spread of the influenza pandemic. And so it's hard to disentangle them, really. They're both tied up with one another and each impacts the other.
2: And Susie61 on Twitter asks, Could the First World War have continued longer if it weren't for this outbreak? Is that something we can predict? Possibly, (laughs) I
3: suppose. is the best I can do.
2: Possibly. But of
3: course there are other geopolitical factors at play in the end of the First World War. And, you know, one dreads to think it had already gone on for four years and killed so many people. So uh, we can speculate, maybe. But I think it's never really one thing that brings a conflict like the world wars to a close Um, and I think perhaps the Spanish flu played a component part but wasn't the only factor at
2: play. Pandemics from the past have had more attention in recent years due to our own experience of a pandemic coronavirus. A comparison often made during this time was the Spanish flu but for those who lived during the Spanish flu what was their comparison?
3: Well, they had a lot to compare to, unfortunately. There were plenty of pandemics in living memory. So there's the, both the fourth and fifth cholera pandemics from the 1860s, 1870s, 1880s and 1890s. So for people living in 1918, well within um, living memory. There were also smaller scale epidemics that were more local to people's lives, like yellow fever, typhus, those sorts of things. And the third plague pandemic in the 1890s travelled all around the world, as is denoted by a pandemic, and killed many people, especially in China and and in Asia. And so there would have been a lot for people to compare it to, although obviously it was a different disease with its own unique characteristics.
2: And while we're on the subject of COVID, many people have asked, as you can probably predict, what are the comparisons that can be made between the Spanish flu and the COVID pandemic?
3: Well, there are some obvious ones like scale both have been truly global pandemics. The number of people who have been affected and died from the disease and Spanish flu killed more people, but that doesn't mean that they don't have similar kind of scales in terms of infection rates and impact on life and culture and society and politics and the economy. I'd also say that they both were subject to similar containment measures, although implemented in slightly different ways. So there are restrictions on social gatherings, on movement around the world. Mask wearing obviously is something that both pandemics have in common. And I think they both have also been hugely influential as historians of medicine. We know that diseases have the capacity to powerfully shape the world. And this is seen most clearly in big pandemics like Spanish flu and COVID. I would also say that both had cut across social class and race and ethnicity in similar ways, as do all diseases. And they also both were communicated in very similar ways by respiratory, by close quarters. And they both have that sort of challenging characteristic, which is that there's no simple, straightforward cure. So most people who got COVID would be treated with supportive treatments if they went into hospital or treated themselves at home or recovered at home. And that's the same for the Spanish flu. And although obviously that's, you know, for the vast majority of people who got both COVID and the Spanish flu, they survived and were able to look after themselves at home. It's obviously a good thing. There's also challenging things, I think, for people's faith in medicine and for medicine's faith in itself, diseases that don't have simple, ah, we've just got a treatment here, we can just, you know, cure it. And I think that is always a bit challenging and does something to the way that societies respond to a disease because it also fundamentally unsettles people. I think there's a lot of faith in medicine and science and when it can't quite come to the rescue in the ways that people want it to, I think that can be challenging emotionally and psychologically.
2: Your point there about faith and religion is really interesting. Were there any impacts from the Spanish flu on religion at the time?
3: No, I mean, this is a period of increasing secularisation and a period of reduction of organised religion's public life or influence on public life. And you know, there's a lot has been written about the impact of world war one on faith on like how it destabilized a lot of people's sort of straightforward belief in say the goodness of god you know it's so kind of cataclysmic and you could argue that pandemics have a similar impact that they unsettle people's feelings about like what is right and how the world works and you know whether god is there to protect them and all this kind of stuff and also obviously because quite literally the pandemic disrupted worship and services in lots of places and so you could say that perhaps it weaken people's ties with their like local church but equally these big events can strengthen people's faith and i think it's easy to overstate the secularization process that happens at the beginning of 20th century i mean lots of people continue to believe passionately in their local religion and some religions have really thrived over the course of the 20th century whereas you know so protestantism for example has maybe faltered particularly in Britain, but in other parts of the world, religion goes from strength to strength. So um, it's difficult to make general statements about the world.
2: A question on Instagram asks, how did the Spanish flu pandemic actually end?
3: Well, with a whimper rather than a bang, as is also the case in almost all pandemics, that they slowly peter out, they taper out rather than coming to an abrupt stop. Basically, people acquired immunity, so people who survived became more immune to them Um, And there's some, I'm not a um, geneticist or a scientist, but some scientists um, argue that they became less lethal as time went on. So there were successive waves of the flu and the first wave was the most deadly and it became generally less so. And it kind of came incorporated into our seasonal flu cycle. So there are still versions of the Spanish flu that you and I are going to get every winter um, or some winters but we'll survive them they won't kill us hopefully and so that is one of the things one of the characteristics of flu viruses is that they stick around for a really long time but just in a more attenuated form they're not as lethal as they once were so yeah not a very exciting answer i'm afraid but an accurate one
2: And as we come to the end of the podcast, I'd love to just examine some of the impacts the Spanish flu had on society. Sometimes in the aftermath of catastrophic events like this, for several reasons, we can see a flurry of art being released into the world. Was there any prevalent art or literature created as a result of the Spanish flu?
3: Absolutely. I mean, there are some sort of household names, if you can call them that, that responded very directly to the Spanish flu pandemic. So Egon Schiele, Edvard Munch, Gustav Klimt all made art around the themes of the pandemic. And some people think Gustav Klimt died from Spanish flu and Egon Schiele and his wife definitely did. And so there's a very tangible, obvious impact there on Kind of Western art. There's also more diffuse impacts like the Dada movement, Bauhaus, lots of the kind of art movements that sprung up in the interwar years made reference to the kind of cataclysmic events of a pandemic and of the world war, and sort of reckoned in different ways with life and death and faith and um, the sort of role of society and the state. So yeah, there were lots of examples. It's also interesting, though. I think one of the things that's perhaps most puzzling in some ways about the Spanish flu is, although it really Rose to the surface during the COVID pandemic, in that there were lots of articles comparing the two pandemics, lots of people reflecting on the Spanish flu. Lots of people think of it as a kind of forgotten pandemic that it didn't really get recorded in literature, for example, as much as, say, other things, other diseases might have done. There aren't any... Well, there's one commemoration, sort of commemorative uh, structure to the Spanish flu, the victims of the Spanish flu in, in Britain, but very little kind of public grief or public mourning, public commemoration. And there's lots of questions there, I think, that that, that sort of raises about how we're going to remember the COVID pandemic or how we might not remember the COVID pandemic. What does public commemoration of something like that look like? What's the best way to record? You know, there's so many statues and cenotaphs and what have you for the victims of war. How do we commemorate the victims of disease in quite the same way? And so I think that's something that people will have to reckon with as we go forward thinking about the COVID pandemic.
2: And finally, Agnes, How did the Spanish flu change society and culture, and are we able to see any of its effects today?
3: It made it possible, or it made it seem possible, to impose large-scale public health measures on communities, on cities, on societies, and arguably that paved the way for the future of Pandemic containment or disease containment, and you know, could have strengthened the role of public health in different places. The problem is, is that's a very difficult thing to say with any like authority about the world as a whole, and it's going to be much more local and specific. But also, there are lots. It's, it's quite difficult to disentangle the impact of Spanish flu. And the impact of World War One on society and culture and politics. Lots of people think of the 1920s. It's got a reputation as the kind of the sort of era of flappers and the Jazz Age, um, sort of you know the precursor to the swinging 60s, a time of unbridled joy and lots of kind of you know excess after the traumas of the World War and the pandemic. Um, but equally, it was a time of increased repression. So um, increasingly restrictive immigration measures were introduced across the West, which obviously has its roots in disease containment. So historically, the first kind of social victims, I suppose, of of pandemic containment have been migrants and people of colour, immigrants, people who think of as kind of quote unquote aliens. And so there are lots of new policies enacted, especially in the United States across the 1920s to limit immigration. And so it's easy to think that maybe, you know, people responded to the pandemic with the kind of the roaring 20s, but equally there were other things that were much more restrictive and much darker um, that we still live with today. You know, those sorts of more problematic um, consequences are still very much with us. And again, it'll be interesting to see how societies and politicians and governments respond To the covid pandemic in the next 10 years like what will they do will they will there be another roaring 20s but will that roaring 20s also cover some more
0: troubling social and political shifts that was agnes arnold forster a writer researcher and historian her first book the cancer problem was published by oxford university press in 2021 And you can learn more about the Spanish flu pandemic, including an article about why there was a backlash to wearing masks, on our website, historyextra.com. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green.